From talk to music, from Johannesburg to Israel, from sport to business, this is 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson on Finding Human. My guest today is Rabbi Alon Joseph. Our topic today is optimism versus pessimism. And Rabbi Alon has done a lot of research on this and has got an incredible PowerPoint presentation on it. And I'm really excited to have him in the studio with me. And thank you, Vusi, for be doing this pre-record. Welcome, Rabbi Alon. Thank you, sir. It's so lovely to be back with you for another show. You know that the last one we got such good uh, feedback that it was great, really. And we're going to be doing another one also in about five weeks' time or something on authenticity, so which we're both excited about. Now, today we've got a few sh- a sh- very short YouTubes after each advert and then a song at the end by Monty Python on um, Let's Look at the Good Side of Life. And Rabbi Alon has just told me that he hopes I listen to it because there is a bit of swear swearing there so he hopes that the, it's the edited version well I hope so too if it's not please forgive me okay Rabbi Alon tell me what actually brought you to this particular topic optimism versus pessimism and so, give us a maybe a, a, a definition of the two so uh, I would say that human nature always um, has fascinated me how we how we work as human beings the human mind and how we respond to situations, we find that um, two people can go through the same situation and yet analyze it differently and come out from it. And everybody sees things so so differently. And I just think from my own personal experience, as you go through things, and why is it that sometimes we respond in a negative way? Why in a positive way? What's really happening behind behind the scenes? And I think we live in a world where everybody's either optimistic or pessimistic, and they're big words. And it's always fascinated me. Um, I came across research by one of the leading psychologists in this area, Martin Seligman, and when I saw his research, I found it fascinating, um, how he defined it, how he's analyzed it, and the things that he's learned from it, and hopefully we'll be sharing some of that today. But I think the definitions are really, really important. People often say there's an optimist, there's a pessimist, and then there's a realist. But I think if we look at the definitions, it's, it's, it's really fascinating. He says like this, that what is a pessimist? Generally, we think a pessimist is someone who's like, everything's bad. And that's true. But the definition, I think, clarifies it. And it says this, pessimism denotes a belief that the experienced world is the worst possible. It describes a general belief that things are bad, and tend to become worse. So the pessimist looks at things and says, oh, this is bad. And if I think, and if I think this is bad, it's only going to get worse. And they think worst case scenario, and it's only going to get worse and worse and worse. While the optimist generally is an outlook on life such that one maintains a view of the world as a positive place. Optimists generally believe that people and events are inherently good so that most situations work out in the end for the best. So they they see a situation, they understand, okay, this is not the most ideal situation. It might not be what I wanted, but I understand in the end of the day, things will always turn out for the best. And they look for the good within the bad. They look at the situation and say, how can I make the most of it? So they're not denying that the situation is bad. They're not in this bubble of, of wow, this is so beautiful and look at all this destruction and disaster. Wow, it's magnificent. No. <laughs> they look at it and they understand it. They see it for what it is. They see the reality. But they also understand, as the famous says, this too will pass. They see something beyond the situation where the pessimist tends to 
gets stuck in the situation and tends to make it worse. And they, they tend to, to, to look at it and think it over and over and over. And they, and, and every situation just gets worse and worse and worse in their mind for them. Do you actually think that we swing between the two? That sometimes we're not either the one or the other? That we are in between sometimes? I think very much, and we'll discuss that just now about where does it come from. But I think depending on the situation, we will we'll be like a pendulum. Sometimes we'll be the optimist, sometimes we'll be the pessimist. And even sometimes in different situations, one day I'll be the optimist in the situation and one day I'll be the pessimist, mm. or even from hour to hour. I was going to say even from hour to hour, yes. And But there's nothing worse than someone who's over-optimistic, you know, a Pollyanna. That when you say, I'm having a bad day, they say, but look at the sky, look at, you know, and, and they take away your feelings. So they, they almost, they don't want you to feel the pain that you might be feeling, whether it's physical or emotional. They'd rather sort of say, well, let's, this, as you said, this too shall pass, but sometimes it can be said in a very irritating way. Yes, sometimes you do get those people <laughs> that are highly, Irritating. And, and what's interesting is that I think in the world we live in, we need people like that. The world is made up of different people. That doesn't mean that they're better. That's just their model of the world. That's how they see the world around them. Um, Martin Seligman has a scale of optimism and pessimism. And he says people who are like that, you need people like that because those are your salespeople. Those are the people who really get things done. They don't see bad. They just see, oh, look at this, look at this, and they just see the good. So it's true. They're not able to, let's say, empathize with other people. But for them and their model of the world, it works. And they become successful using that. Is it irritating? Sometimes it can be very irritating. But the world needs people like that because those are the success. And in a company, you want people like that because those are the people who are going to be your best salespeople. Those are the people who are going to go out there and make your company really successful. So it just depends on the environment. Um, sometimes you want people who are pessimistic. You want an accountant to, you, you, you don't want an accountant who's absolutely optimistic. No, don't worry about the financial markets and no, don't worry about this and don't worry about that. Sometimes you want, um, your CFO to be a bit more on, on the pessimistic side of it or with a bit of a balance between the two. So it just depends. Yeah. Do you think that certain professions actually some attract optimists and some attract pessimists? So Martin Seligman says yes. He says, for example, the lawyers, he says, generally are trained to be very pessimistic, generally by nature. That's not a bad thing. Again, neither one of these of these personality traits are good or bad. It's just it's just who the person is. He says, for, for example, lawyers generally score very low on the optimism side because their whole training is to see worst case scenario. And you want that in a company. You want someone who's going to look at it and say, you know, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? What's the worst possible case that can happen? Sometimes you want people analyzing your business like that because that's really going to save you a lot of money at the end of the day. So different professions will see things in different ways. Mm -hmm. And he looks at it and he says it's very interesting to understand human nature. You know, so people say, oh, no, these guys look at it like this. And it's true, but they're also trained to look at it like that because they're trying to save your company at the end of the day. So it's just about understanding people, I think. And I think that's a big thing. And then how do you feel in the, in the workplace if you're, if you're actually, if you're the CEO, how do you motivate your, your, your workforce if you're a pessimist? So that's a very interesting thing. That's a very interesting thing. And maybe as we, as we go through the conversation, by the end of the conversation, hopefully we'll be able to, 
to identify and be able to to help those people. Firstly, we have to see if you want to help them. You know, if you've got a lawyer, for example, as we just said, you don't necessarily want to make them the most optimistic person. It's about realizing what each person's task is, working with them within their environment. But also you don't want someone who's walking around your environment who's doom and gloom. So it's about, it's about, it's about creating a balance and about creating an environment that's accepting of everyone, but also helping people to take those challenges that they face. And sometimes it's more on a personal level. It's about understanding where people are coming from, looking at people in their own situation. If a person's going through some, through a very difficult situation, it's about giving them the tools and the skills to maybe change a bit of that pessimism into some optimism. And maybe that can start a beautiful discussion about how do we do that? Mm. How do we start changing that? And um, when Martin Seligman looked at this, I think one of the best examples that I've, I've seen and that everyone focuses on is Roger Bannister. You know, let's say about Roger Bannister, he was the first person to break the four-minute mile. They say it was humanly impossible. Even scientists said that if a man would run a mile in under four minutes, his heart would stop. That's it. He would, his heart would jump out of his body. He would have a heart attack on the spot and boom, gone. And Roger Bannister was the first person to do it. And everyone makes an amazing story of Roger Bannister. But I think there is an unsung hero in this story that I, that I picked up on. And that is his greatest opponent. John Landy was Roger Bannister's greatest opponent. It was between the two of them who was going to break the four-minute mile. And John Landy, two weeks before Roger Bannister was about to break the four-minute mile, he ran it, and he did it in 4.01. And he said that this is humanly impossible. No one will break the four-minute mile. Who said that? Landy. John Landy said Mm -hmm. that. Roger Bannister broke the record. And uh, the dates are very, very interesting. If I, if I just look at the dates quickly, it was, I can't remember the exact dates at the moment. I know, I know 1954 was the year. Yes, yes. So I think 1954. So what happened was after Roger Bannister broke the record six weeks later, John Landy took two and a half seconds off Roger Bannister's record. Wow. And he was the one who said it could never be done. Exactly. So and what do you, what do you attribute that to? So there's different personalities in the world, and I think John Landy is an incredible story for us to learn from. You see, a Roger Bannister is like a trailblazer. How did he do it? He looked at the four-minute mile, and he said, you know what? If I break up the four-minute mile into four equal parts, and I can run each part in under four minutes, I can do this. I mean, in under a minute, I can do this. And that's what he did, but he was a trailblazer in his thinking. John Landy, on the other hand, said, you know what? It can't be done. His mindset, his belief was that it was impossible. But once he saw someone else do it, he said, if he can do it, I can do it, and I can do it even better. And I think that's a lesson for us in this world, is to be those John Landys. Look for the situations. Not everybody can be a trailblazer. But we can learn from the John Landys of our life and say, if other people can do it, and other people got through the situations, and other people have faced difficulties, so can I. And I can also overcome them. So look at the challenge and step into it. Agreed. From talk to music, from Johannesburg to Israel, from sport to business, this is 101.9 High FM. We're in New York City in Union Square, and we're just out in the streets here finding out if people are optimists or pessimists. How are you folks doing? Do I have to catch anything? <laughs> no, no. Okay. Would you say that you're an optimist or a pessimist? Uh, well, it certainly depends on the day. I've never uh, taken that question seriously. I would say I'm an optimist. An optimist. Sure. I would say I'm a pessimist, yeah. Okay. Yeah. How do you think that affects your day-to-day life? 
I think it slows me down a little bit. I'm an optimist. You're an optimist. I'm definitely an optimist. And, and why, why would you say that? Just look around you. It's beautiful out. <laughs> yeah. You know? You know? Not a cloud. There's hardly a cloud in the sky. I'm alive. I'm here with you guys. Yeah. Can you think of one time when it was hard to be an optimist? Jeez. Last semester, I was doing a bio class, biology. Right? And first two tests, I completely failed. I um, lost both of my parents at a very young age. You know, my life was, was headed in a wrong direction. A lot of depression. I've been in the wheelchair for 19 years, so... Maybe every time I was scraping by, wondering what I was going to eat next uh, next meal. Well, I slept on the floor on a towel for like three weeks, and then I was like saving up to buy a bed, but it got better. There was always something good to look forward to, no matter what situation you're in. When you get that meal, there you go. It doesn't have to be that you, you win the lottery. Something small is still that much important. My life experience showed me that being a pessimist and uh, being desperate brings to nothing. And there are definitely days where I have to remind myself, like, take advantage of your time here. My wife had cancer and I took care of her for five years. We used to travel with her cancer and the reason was because we always thought that it's going to be better. Of course, cancer could kill and it killed her, yeah. but... Enjoy life to the fullest. Bad situations. It might seem like bad situations because of what I was taught. That that's a really good time to sort of try to flip it and think about what you've got to be grateful for. Well, like, at least I have, you know, my sight, my feelings, my hearing. Now I'm working as a software developer. You know, I went from just, you know, scraping by to where I am yeah. now. I have a 98-year-old grandmother who's an eternal optimist. Yeah. I think it's how she's stayed healthy and happy. That's that's what's good about being an optimist is you can always look ahead. Enjoy the present as opposed to lamenting it. And if you don't like your present, change your present. That's why it's the future. Hello, this is Sue Jackson on Finding Human. My guest today is Rabbi Lon Joseph, and we are talking about optimism versus pessimism. And you've just heard a short YouTube which was done on the streets of New York, and I think it it gave quite a, a varied outlook on different people, some who had literally come from the gutter upwards, you know, and pulled themselves up, and others who were, uh, one who was in a wheelchair and said, look at the, the, the sky today. What did you think of that, Rabbi Alon? I love that clip. I love seeing the difference between how people see the world. And I think it comes back to how we started off, that the optimist versus the pessimist, they both experienced both. And their question was, have you, um, to the optimist, have you ever been a pessimist? And they said, yes. Everyone experiences both. It just depends. If you listen to that video clip very carefully, it was the way that they explained it. They looked to the future. They saw something more than the present situation. All the optimists were the same. It wasn't that they were unrealistic. It was that they took the reality that they faced themselves in and said, it won't always be like this. And I think that's a big thing. If we look at how we explain success or failure, if you listen to how they explain it, was very interesting. The optimists see failure as something that can be changed and uh, so that they can succeed the next time around. They look at it and say, okay, so I didn't get this this time, so how do I fix it up and how do I make it better the next time? Where the pessimist takes the blame and they, they make it long-lasting. And I think just now when we get to explaining events, you'll be able to understand very, very clearly the difference between the two. You know, the, the one thing that, um, that they mentioned that I really liked when 
um, the one student said, well, you know, I failed two of my tests last semester. Uh. And it's an interesting thing because there was, there was an interesting study where they did that. A person works hard for a test. We put a lot, a lot of effort into whether it's an interview or a test. And we have in our minds how we'd like it to go. And what happens is, is that when you get the result or you get the answer, if it doesn't match your reality, how do you respond to that? You've put so much effort. You felt so good about it. And um, Martin Seligman said they did this study with the American Olympic swimming team. They wanted to see how optimism and pessimism works on a psychological level. And what they did is they asked each of them to swim their strongest strength. They said, you know, go and swing your, your, your strongest stroke. And they timed them. And at the end, they said to them, great. And they gave them their time. But it was much, they gave them a time that was much worse than what they actually had done. So they told them, you know, swim your heart out and let's see how well you can do. And they did. And they said, no, 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 th- this was your time. And the person was, wow, I really thought I did better. So they said, you know, what? go do it again. Try it again the second time. Now you're dealing with the American Olympic swimming team. This is out of the whole of America, your top swimmers. These are the people you're sending to the Olympics to go win gold. This is, these are your stars from the, across the whole of America. And they told them, go swim that stroke again. Go do it better. Out of the entire American Olympic swimming team he brings, there was only one swimmer that when told to swim a second time, did better the second time than the first time. All the rest did worse the second time than the first time. And the only one who did better was Michael Phelps. Good heavens. Why? What, what did they put it down to? And what they, how they explain it is the most beautiful way. A person puts effort into something. You swim your heart out. You give your heart to something. You're expecting a certain result. When it did not match, you feel disappointed. You feel, wow, I didn't get what I wanted, but I thought I did. And that disappointment, that belief in yourself that, oh, I really thought I could do better, has a negative, has this negative impact on a person. Mm. It's that pessimist inside of us that comes out and says, you see, I told you you couldn't do it. Mm. It's the way that we rationalize our failures that will determine whether we are a true optimist or pessimist and how we deal with it. All, all successful people, they explain and they show in research that what they do is that when things don't go their way, what they're able to do is learn from that. Um, I remember someone once said, I can't remember who they quoted, but uh, they said, never waste a good crisis. <laughs> Look for the I opportunities. Like and uh, and um, Warren Buffett, it might have been him, but he, he's got that very big belief of don't waste a crisis. In everything that's bad, there is something that is good. And it just depends how we want to analyze that, how we want to see that. You know, I think so much of the time, I once threw out a question to a group of people and I, and I asked them, what do you think are the two most dangerous words that we have in our society today? You know, and people are trying different things and throwing out different words. I said the two of the, of, of the two words that are the greatest challenge of our generation. You know, and uh, it was, and it became an interesting discussion and I said to them, I'll tell you what I think those two words are. And I said, I think the two words are I can't. That's amazing. Because when a person says, I can't do something, we put up a mental barrier. The size of, of any wall that you can imagine, pure concrete, says, I can't do this. I don't even have to think about it anymore because I've told myself, I can't do it. So I've relinquished all responsibility. I don't need to do this. I can't do this. And yet with kids, kids, if, you know, if a, if a child will say, I remember someone telling me that their daughter was doing ballet and uh, they told the teacher, I can't do this. And the teacher looked at them very sternly and said, I know you can do this. I believe you can do this and you will do this. Now go and do it. And the child did it. <laughs> and the teacher said, you see, I told you, you can do it. 
And it's that same belief system that we often think about how often we use these words, I can't, oh, I can't do this, and I can't do that. It's a belief that we're telling ourselves, I can't do that. And it's not, I can't, I don't believe those words, I can't. What it is, it's, I don't want to. Mm. I don't want to put the effort into something. I don't want to go commit to something. It's too much hard work. It's easier saying, I can't, and relinquishing responsibility and control, and saying, you know, it's beyond me, instead of saying, you know what, I can, I just don't know if I want to. So how much of this is learned behavior? You know, I was just thinking about, I know that a lot of uh, creative people, you mentioned ballet, but a lot of creative people uh, are are very self-critical. I know for myself I'm a writer, and I am probably my own very worst crit- I certainly don't need anyone else to <laughs> criticize my work. I know how to do it. I can't. <laughs> so how much of it is learned behavior, do you think? So that's a very interesting question. I think it depends on the person. You know, I think what happens is is that it just depends how we look at the situations around us. A lot of it might be how we brought up. Words that we use, you know, if you're brought up and people tell you, no, you can't do this and you can't do that. We tend to believe that. And then we tend to limit our beliefs because of that. Because I believe, oh, people told me I can't do it. Therefore, it's true. And being our own critic, sometimes it is we are we are our harshest critic. Mm. But we also have to be our biggest fan. And I think our that's biggest the, what? our biggest fan. We have to be our own raving fan, giving ourselves encouragement. Praising ourselves as well for the good and as well as being critical on the bad, saying, hold on, could I have done this better? Is that really my best work? And using those things as well in our own personalities to help us grow. Yes, it might be that it is bad and it's about learning. From it. So why is it bad? What don't I like about it? How can I learn to make it better the next time? We should be critical of ourselves, but not overly critical that we destroy ourselves. And yet you also have the other side where children will say, oh, it's the teacher's fault. I know I did much better than she said I have done. And, um, you know, it's it's that overindulgent of our children of saying they are perfect when actually there, there is some realism in the fact that they aren't always. Agreed. And I think that's where the optimism comes into it, is that there's good, but there's also reality of saying, was that really my best? Okay. I got this mark. Am I capable of better? I think so. I think I can, you know, did I really work hard for that? Sometimes we're very quick to relinquish blame on other people. Just like we say, I can't. And why can't I do it? Mm-hmm. No, it's this person's fault and it's that person. And what we do is that Martin Seligman brings a very interesting thing. And he explains, he says, what really happens um, between an optimist and a pessimist? And he says it's all based on our explanatory um, style of how we explain our events to ourselves, and he says that there are three things that happens. Can we go we back to that in a moment? We can with pleasure. From talk to music, from Johannesburg to Israel, from sport to business, this is one hundred one point nine High FM. Everyone knows if you've done any studies, Dr. Seligman is very famous for doing studies on optimism. And in those studies, you know what he found out? People that are pessimists are much more realistic. They're much more accurate. If you give them a test and you ask them to look at something and give you a size measurement of it or to evaluate their own success or failure in a task, and every study Seligman's done, he did it in the University of, I think, Pennsylvania, if I remember correctly, originally, what he found was that optimists always see themselves as doing better than they really did. They basically BS themselves. What happens to pessimists, they're ten times more accurate. But here's what he found out. What he found out is because the people who are accurate never push themselves because they know it's never going to work anyway. Whereas the optimist sees it better than it is, 
So they keep doing it. Because they have the illusion they did well, well, I'll do even better next time. And because of that optimism, they did it more often, and so optimists succeed at a four to five fold, depending upon the task, result ultimately beyond anything that a pessimist will do, and they're not as accurate. All that's a big way of saying is, if you can develop a psychology of resilience in yourself, you don't have to be optimistic or fake, you can be real. The realness is, whatever shows up, you are larger than anything that can happen to you. Hello, this is Sue Jackson on Finding Human, and Rabbi Alon Joseph and I are talking about optimism versus pessimism, and that was a very short YouTube by Tony Robbins, and I know that, and he mentioned Dr. Seligman, and Rabbi Alon has mentioned him often today, in today's talk. What, before we broke for, for that YouTube, what were we, were we discussing, Rabbi Alon? So we were discussing, as he mentioned in Martin Seligman's work, he discusses that when a person faces adversity, the difference between an optimist and a pessimist, psychologically what happens is, is that how we explain these events to ourselves. And he says that there are three styles that, that we have. And he says that these three styles really explain it. He says you've got your permanence, your pervasiveness, and your personal. And he says that what's permanence is that people will use things like this. It's always going to be like this. I'm never going to find anybody. So it's permanent. You're making the situation absolutely fixed. That's it. There's no way around it. It's always going to be like that. Pervasiveness, he says that it's going to undermine every aspect of my life. Women and men hate me. Right? Well, all women and all men, but you make it pervasive. It affects every area. And the last one, he says, is your personal style. The person will say, it's my fault. Who could ever love me? That that would be your your pessimist way of explaining. But he says these three areas, your permanence, your pervasiveness, and your personal. And he says this is what they really test. When he runs all of his tests, the three areas that they're testing is that when things don't go right, how permanent do you make it, how pervasive do you make it, and how personal do you make it? Your pessimist makes it very personal, very pervasive, and very permanent. Where your optimist looks at the situation very, very differently. It's not permanent, it's not pervasive, and it's not personal. Mm-hmm. And he says that that's the, that, that, that's the way, and if you look at Tony Robbins, he says that's exactly the thing. It's true that optimists might be more accurate. Uh, I mean, that pessimists might be more accurate, but optimists achieve more because they're able to learn from situations. They explain situations differently. So if we look at things that go bad or things that don't go the way we want them, how do we explain? Have you ever listened to that inner voice inside of us that we have? And we all have these inner voices. And he explains it as a, he uses very simple terms, and he says that we've got our ABCs. Martin Seligman says we have our ABCs. A is your adversity. When you hit that brick wall, what happens when things don't go the way you want it? So you hit this brick wall. Your B is your belief. How do you explain it to yourself? What is your interpretation of that event? And then C are your consequences based on your belief. Now, we're not often aware of our beliefs. It's something that we've grown up with. It's something that's just so um, integral and so personal and so much part of us that we're not really thinking about that little voice. We just go from A to C. An event happens and we have consequences. But it's that belief, it's that B that he says is the essence of everything. It's that little voice that we need to start listening to inside of ourselves to explain events to ourselves. And it's such a, it's such a powerful way of looking at things. 
It's very powerful. And I think it also goes back to when this moment is enough. You know, which I think is often very, very hard to look at it like that. Don't you think so? When you actually think, I am in this moment. And this is what is happening. Um, now, let me live in this moment. So we go back to our choice of our attitude, which is our only freedom that we ever have in any situation that we're in. The famous Viktor Frankl quote. Absolutely. <laughs> But, but it's true. And, and it's that, and uh, that freedom is, is our belief system that we have of ourselves. And I think that the way that we view ourselves is so important. As you said, we can be our biggest critic or we can be our greatest fan. And that just means that sometimes about looking at a situation and just being honest with yourself about it and say, you know, that wasn't my best performance. Okay. I didn't give my best. Okay. That's fine. Let me learn from it. Let me become better. It's that belief system that, that is so ingrained. But, but we live in a world where unfortunately that's, that's changed. You know, a child will do something wrong and the parent will also, no, it was the teacher's fault or it was this one's yes. fault. And they remove it and they remove the opportunity for the child to learn from that lesson. Instead of saying to the child, did you give your best? Maybe there's something you can learn from it. They also, you know, as a child they take will take away the responsibility. Yeah. A child will hurt themselves on a chair. And what does the parent do? Smack the chair. The uh. chair didn't do anything <laughs> wrong. So why are you smacking the chair? No, no, because you want to make the child feel better. But that might not be the best way to teach the child a lesson. It's just removing responsibility from them. It's saying something else caused it, which might be true. But how do you learn from that? How do we grow from that? Maybe you weren't looking where you're going. Bad things are going to happen to you. Things aren't always going to be like that. I remember once I was playing soccer with my oldest son and um and he fell and he hurt himself and he was sitting there and he was, and he was crying so i said to him you know i want to teach you an important lesson one day when i was uh, 11 or 12 hours playing soccer i was in a soccer match where we, we were in a soccer tournament and i got tackled very badly and uh i went off the field and uh, my brother came up to me and said what's the matter i said no nah, i'm sore. someone tackled me so he said so why are you here I said, well, I'm sore. So he said, well, how's that going to help the game? And I was like, well, what do you mean? He says, well, you got to get up and you got to go back and continue playing. You can't just let, let that situation and, you know, and let yourself down. Mm. Mm. And, and he said, it might be sore, but, but that's life. You, you got to get up and you got to get on with the game. And I said the same thing to my son. I said, I know it's sore. I know, I know it's not nice and I know it's not nice to hurt yourself and I know you're in pain, but you've got a choice to make. Either you're going to sit there and cry about it. Or you're going to get up and say, you know what, I need to continue playing. And I need to learn the lesson from that to become better. And I think it's sometimes those lessons in life that are really there. You know, is it that permanence? Is it that pervasiveness? Is it that personal? How we are, how we explaining events to ourselves is so important to listen to that inner voice about our beliefs. I think you're so right. And also, you know, what I have seen with parents doing with children is allowing them to win when they haven't won. So, for instance, you might be playing a game of of, uh, snakes and ladders, okay, and you get a six, but you pretend you've got a three so that your son or your daughter can beat you. Now, what lesson are they actually learning from that? You know, they're not learning that. It's okay to fail at times. You know, it's not actually a failure. It's uh, you'll you'll next time throw the dice a bit harder or whatever. You know, the, it is sometimes a roll of the dice, quite honestly, that hits us in life. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It's those situations often that we're not expecting. Yes, absolutely. It's when things don't go the way we want them. 
And it's about, it, like we said, it's how we explain it to ourselves. You know, there were so many famous people that life didn't go the way we want them. They, they, they bring examples um, of some of the most amazing people in, in history. For example, people like George Washington, American president, Agatha Christie, an author, um, Albert Einstein, scientist, Woodrow Wilson, president, Winston Churchill, Thomas Edison, Henry Ford, Walt Disney, Graham Bell, Richard Branson, Ted Turner, some incredible people in history. I mean, I don't think there's anyone who would say that there isn't one someone on that list who's, who hasn't changed um, history in so many ways. And you put all these people together, and I quote these people, and I say to people, what do all these people have in common? They didn't know each other. They, their names might have vowels in them. I don't know. People come up with some crazy stuff. <laughs> and, and I say, you want to know what's the common denominator between all these people? And the answer is, is that they were dyslexic. Good heavens. All these people, American so they were all presidents. Disadvantaged they were all disadvantaged. When they started off. American presidents. Agatha Christie, one of the greatest authors, was dyslexic. Now you look at these people, and if they grew up in our society today, I don't know if they would have. I don't know if they would have become a president, you know, or all these incredible people. So how did they do it? They were all dyslexic, and I remember they that they were all um, labelled. They were labelled, and yet they didn't let it affect them. Mm-hmm. I remember reading um, of Richard Branson, and he said that he's so privileged that he says that his dyslexia is a gift. He says it was his biggest gift. He says because he can't understand big legal contracts. He can't read them. So he says to them, you've got to put it in simple language that I can understand it. Mm. And he says he's turned that into his greatest gift. Because he said, if I can't understand it, I'm not signing it. So make it simple that even I can understand it and I can read it and understand it. So he turned something that most people would say, oh, no, you're labeled. You're at a disadvantage. How can you be successful? None of those people, you know, um, Agatha Christie, all the uh, American pre- – how many presidents today would you get who dyslexic? People, no, 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 no. It's a label. No, you can't have that. So we think they're disadvantaged, but they're not because they never Ellen viewed Keller, it. Ellen for instance, you know, all of those people, as you say, I mean – they, they could so easily be labeled and be nothing. Exactly. But they fought against their label. They took their disadvantage and they turned it into their greatest gift. They explained it in a positive way. They said it doesn't have to be bad. Just because the world says it's bad, who says the world's right? You know, there's this quote by Tish Nachtan, the Buddhist monk, and he says, The seed of suffering in you may be strong, but don't wait until you have no more suffering before allowing yourself to be happy. Even while you have pain in your heart, you can enjoy the many wonders of life, the beautiful sunset, the smile of a child, the many flowers and trees. To suffer is not enough. And that's, that's Tishnatan. And I think that's so often in suffering, how to be uh, optimistic in suffering is, is incredibly difficult. Because we, we can be so consumed by, by emotional pain, by physical pain, that you can't see beyond it at the time. It's very, very difficult. We get caught up in those situations, and that's exactly what Martin Seligman said. He says something so interesting. He brings research that says that people who are religious, whether in, in, in all religions, whether in Judaism or in any religion, he says that people who are religious tend to deal with suffering and disappointment much better they tend to overcome it much easier why and he and that's exactly what he asked he said why why is it like that and he brings such an interesting answer and he says because religion teaches that there's purpose 
Religion teaches that an event that is happening, there is a reason for it. There is something to learn from it. It's not, it's not that someone's trying to punish me. There is a lesson. There is something that it will pass. Throughout history, there's been persecutions, but we have survived. Things have not always gone the way we wanted them as a, as a religion, but we have survived. And he says that built into a religion is, is, is this optimism. And he says, therefore, people who are religious, Tend to deal with things much easier and much better. They tend, it doesn't mean that the suffering's any less. It doesn't mean that the pain is any less. He says, but they're able to look at it and say, you know what? This will pass. What about religions that actually teach that, it, that, um, it's punishment? So I'm not sure he doesn't discuss that, but I would assume that those people would probably be quite depressed. And they would probably look at situations as as that pessimist. Oh, it's bad, and it's only going to get and worse. Self blame. Yeah, and there's no hope to it, you know. And what's the purpose of all of this? And and therefore, how do they deal with that situation? Is probably not in a very healthy or productive way. Probably with a lot of medication, and um, <laughs> you know, and a lot of therapy. But but that's what he says. He says that that religion teaches us to be more optimistic. He says it doesn't take the situation away. But it teaches us that this too will pass, that there's a greater purpose to something. If I can learn the lesson from what I'm going through, maybe there is something greater beyond this. And so we see that example. it's destiny, isn't it? It's, it's looking at, at the continuation of your life, that there is a beginning and there is a, an end. But what happens in between, we don't have any control of. And there's purpose. Mm. And I think that purpose and there's hope. And that purpose and that hope is is enough to give a person the strength, the emotional strength to see through any situation. And I think that is so powerful. You know, if we look at hope and what hope does to someone and how powerful hope is, that it can help a person get through very, very difficult situations. And he says that's what religion and that's what optimism teaches, is that if that person has that inner strength, you can get through any adversity. We can't control what happens to us. But we can control how we respond. And he says that's what our belief system is, is how we respond to situations. And he says we can train ourselves to become more optimistic. If we feel I'm a pessimist, he says we can change that. We can work on ourselves. We, we have to listen to that inner voice, but we can actually learn to change that. And that's an amazing thing. It is an amazing thing. Would you say that pessimism and con, uh, being pessimistic or optimistic um, are contagious? Definitely. We know, especially negativity, we know that negativity breeds like anything. Mm. One person starts on a negative comment and it spreads. And we're going to get back to that spread shortly. From talk to music, from Johannesburg to Israel, from sport to business, this is 101.9 High FM. Are people hardwired to be optimists or pessimists? Anthony Carboni here for DNews, and a new study from Michigan State University says that there's a physical, biological difference in the brains of optimists and pessimists. The study grabbed 71 female participants and pre-screened them to see whether they were predisposed towards thinking the glass was half full or half empty. Then they hooked them all up to an fMRI and showed them pictures of potentially dangerous or negative situations, things like a woman being mugged at knife point. And then they were told not to worry because every picture had a positive outcome, like the woman escaping. And the subjects who showed a more negative attitude in the beginning showed completely different brain activity than those who were positive. The pessimists showed what the team referred to as a backfiring effect. Not only could they not 
picture the positive outcome, but being asked to think positively actually increased their negative thoughts, almost like their brain was digging in its heels saying, nope, you cannot talk me out of this. I know how it ends. Elaine Fox, the director of the Effective Neuroscience Laboratory at the University of Essex, wrote a book a couple years ago called Brainy Brain, Sunny Brain, where she talked about the brain differences between optimists and pessimists. Pessimists tend to have weaker connections between their prefrontal cortex and their amygdala, meaning the part of the brain that's associated with cognitive activity doesn't talk as well to the part of the brain associated with fear and fight or flight instincts. They also have more activity in their right frontal cortex than their left. But are pessimists born that way or is this a case of neuroplasticity, negative life experiences training the brain to think negatively? A study from the University of British Columbia last year did find connections between pessimistic behavior and a particular gene, ADA2B. People without a particular variant of it are unfailingly more optimistic. So yeah, pessimism could be genetic. But why are we so pessimistic about pessimism? Sure, optimism puts less stress on us, causes us to take more risks, but a healthy dose of fear and pessimism is probably what kept us alive early on as a species. Too much optimism can lead to recklessness. A 2011 study showed that optimistic brains can dig into misinformation just as readily as pessimists. So researchers asked people to estimate the likeliness of bad things happening to them. So being fired, getting a horrible disease, being cheated on by a spouse. And then they were told the actual odds of those things happening. If the odds were higher, they refused to change their estimates. No, says the optimistic brain. That is other people. That cannot happen to me. And you can see where that would lead to a lack of preparedness. But anyway, it's looking more and more like you were born with the outlook you have. If you're a pessimist, that means you get to blame your parents for your fear and misfortunes. If you're an optimist, you get to be glad you'll always wake up knowing things are going to be okay. Is there a pragmatist gene? How do we turn that one on? Hello, this is Sue Jackson, and I'm back with Rabbi Alon Joseph, and we're talking about uh, pessimism versus optimism. And you've just heard a, a, a YouTube about whether we, our brains are wired, pre-wired to be either or. And I love the way he ended actually by saying, if you're a pessimist, don't tell me until after I've found another job. <laughs> <laughs> Very cute. So we were talking about whether uh, what, uh, either are or both are contagious. And I must admit that I have found many times you can walk into a situation and you can pick up the vibe immediately that there is this heavy negativity of pessimism. Or you can even see a person coming towards you and you think, oh, my word, how am I going to breathe through this? <laughs> you can see it in body language You can see it in so much You can see a person's attitude In the way that they carry themselves A person's going through a difficult time You can see it in their body language A person's having a good day You can see it in their body language But it's true Negativity spreads as they say like wildfire One person starts a comment Oh yes you're right And like this And, and it's, it's so dangerous Negativity can destroy everything One negative thing It's like having an apple with a worm inside of it it can literally destroy everything. We have to be so careful about our negativity, especially in work environments. At, um, an environment can become toxic so quickly through negativity. A person who is um, a person who's a pessimist who's going through a bad time, something happens at work, they'll come in, guys, this is terrible. You know, this is what happened. Um, and I remember speaking to many business people in all the companies we work in where, where you've got amazing CEOs. And um, there'll be a turn in the market and everyone sits, um, sitting around the boardroom and saying, oh, this is doom and gloom. We're going to have to close down the company. How are we going to survive this? And the CEO will walk in and say, okay, 
So it might not be what we want. How do we deal with it? How do we, how do we use this to our advantage? Um, I remember in, in one company in 2008, particularly when there were, when there was a very big financial crisis. Um, I remember sitting with a CEO of a company and he said he walked into his boardroom and everyone was like, I think we're going to close down. How are we going to survive? And he looked at them and he said, guys, just because our model has worked for so long doesn't mean we can't change it. How do we make the situation work for us? And they took the situation and they redefined and they came up with three new business models that they had to implement to survive. And what happened was is that after things started looking up, they now had three new businesses. They now had three three new models. So instead of looking at the situation and, le- and letting the negativity breed, they came in and they said, right, it might not be what we want. It might not be ideal, but it doesn't mean we can't work with it. How That's do we? So true. And it's so true. And I think it's, you know, it says, it says that I saw a beautiful quote that says, believing you have both the will and the way to accomplish your goals, whatever they may be, which means that it's not dependent on the situation. It's dependent on you as the person and how you analyze your own situation. Do you let the situation get the better of you? Or do you say, you know what? This isn't what I wanted. How do I make the most of it? What do I have? How can I make this work? Is there anything over here that can possibly work? What, what am I looking at? And again, listening, I can't stress enough, listening to that inner voice about our belief system, about ourselves. And our strengths. You know, in the many um, experiences that we have had through life, we each grow strengths from that. And often we, we tend to negate those strengths. And yet it's at, it's in times when we're feeling pessimistic or when life has hit us that we have to draw on those strengths and say, I can get through this. I have before and I will again. Yeah. And I think not only that, I think even a further point is that sometimes we learn some of our greatest strengths from those difficult situations. You know, if everything would be easy, if a person who's trying something new, if, for example, you look at all famous people who failed, Whenever they failed, they used that failure to help them develop their skills even more, to become even better and even greater. And they say, if everything would have been easy, I wouldn't have had to develop um, new skills or better skills. I wouldn't have become a far better person. And sometimes it's looking at those situations and saying, you know what? I can actually use this to my advantage. Let me see what I've got. Let me see the skills. Let me try and learn new skills. Let me try to turn this to my advantage and see how I can actually utilize this to become and to achieve everything I've ever wanted. Is it difficult? Yes. Is it easy? No. But at the end of it, you'll look back and say, wow, I actually learned so much about myself and about my own personality and the skills that I even, that I didn't think I had. Mm. Just like we mentioned before at the beginning, when a person says, I can't, and then they push themselves and push themselves and so they, and then they show themselves, you know what? I can think about what they've learned. Think about that journey. They say, wow, I didn't think I was capable of doing that. But I did. Mm. Wow. That's incredible. They feel energized. They feel, you know what? I had a belief system about myself. And now I've shown myself that that belief system was not true. Maybe I've got other belief systems that I'm limiting myself by telling myself I can't do this when maybe I can. So it's not cast in stone. No. We have an ability to, we have the ability to change whenever we want to change. You know that Ralph um, um, Emerson said, the sun shines and warms and lights us, and we have no curiosity to know why this is. But we ask the reason of all evil and pain and hunger and mosquitoes and silly people. 
So we don't look at what is beautiful often around us, but we do look at what's irritating us the most. I think we live in a society where we are bred to look at negativity. Unfortunately, we, we, we look at all billboards and I often speak about it. You look at all marketing, you know. How much marketing do you see that says to you, don't buy me, you've already got some of me at home, you don't need a new one. Mm. You know, <laughs> if we look at the education system, we live in a world that almost is breeding us to be pessimists, to look at everything in worst case scenario, because they don't want us to be happy. If you look at, if you look at people who are trying to sell you products, they want you to buy a new product, and the only way they can get you to do that is by telling you what you've got isn't enough. Mm. And we believe that. And therefore, I believe that I've got to have something better. I've got to be that. And if I don't have that, then I look at it and say, well, who am I? Why? You know, and we put ourselves down because of that. So I think we do unfortunately live in a very pessimistic society and it's very difficult for us. But we can overcome that. We have to realize through all the research out there, we can overcome that. We can turn ourselves into these optimists. And it's not when times are good. Martin Seligman writes extensively about this, that when times are good, everyone's happy. That's not where you see the true strength of someone. It's when times are bad, when they're challenging, that's where you see whether a person is an optimist or a pessimist. I remember once um, in one of the companies, uh, I, I gave out a test like this just to just to assess. It was, it was fascinating to see because I, I took my – you can download his test online and you can take the test. And in, in some of the companies, I was giving this talk and people wanted to know, you know, will it work, will it work? So I gave them the test. And the results were fascinating when I analyzed it for them and gave it back to them. Um, in one company, there was a CEO. He said, you know, I've got some managers. I'd like you just to do the test on them for me. I just want to know, you know, should I promote them into, into a bigger position or not? So I, I did a test on a couple of them, and I brought it back to him, and I said, listen, you should know your one manager. He's great when times are good, but when times are bad, he's really going to struggle. And he said, okay, thank you. And a couple of months later, he phoned me up, and he said, how did you know? I said, um, how did I know what? He said, how did you know that this guy, he says, times are going bad and he's struggling and he's destroying my whole department. He said, how did you know? I said, that's just what the test showed. The test showed that when times are difficult, he's going to struggle because his belief system about himself is that he's going to explain it in a very negative way and it's going to affect everyone around him. I said, but the good part is that he can change. Let's work with him. Let's change that pessimism into optimism. And I think that's the challenge for all of us. I think on that note, I think you're so right. I think we need to question life. We need to question our response to life and and our ability to actually respond that we do have it within us. Um, we haven't got much time left. We're going to be playing a, a, a song at the end. But I want to end with this quote. And I first of all want to say thank you so much, Rabbi Alon. I know it always goes very quickly. We've both got a lot more to say on this subject. But um, we will get back again to, to it. And it's been great sharing this time with you. Is there anything you want to end by saying? Just thank you so much. It's always such an honor and a privilege to spend this time with you and to people who are listening. Thank you so, so much. And uh, we should always be able to see the good in all the situations. Amen to that. And I'd like to end with this. And Liz, if you're listening in in Australia, I think your dad said something very similar to this. The pessimist complains about the wind. The optimist expects it to change. The realist adjusts the sail. Thank you very much.